You tuned in to the Policy Talks podcast by Bharti Institute of Public Policy from the Indian School of Business. We hope to understand the personalities behind policies and demystify the complex policy making labyrinth. Every Tuesday, we speak to seasoned stalwarts and promising young legislative fellows who have made indelible marks in shaping the Indian policy landscape. So we come back once again with Mr. Amarjeet Sinha, the former advisor to the Prime Minister, for another episode of the Policy Talks. Mr. Sinha, last episode we talked about a lot about policy implementation and uh, you know the last mile delivery. I would in fact like to step a little back and you know talk about the policy design part of it. Because both the design and implementation have to go hand in hand. And I don't know how you weigh it, but as an academic working in the policy field, I feel both implementation and design have to go together. So what are your views on the policy design? And you have been leading you know, the initiatives in the country, uh, including the Sarvachiksha Abhiyan, the National Rural Health Mission, you know, the others like the Prime Minister Gram Sadak Yojana, many others, and even a lot of work that you did with uh, Manrega and others. Uh, how do you see policy design evolving in India over the time? And uh, you know, how policy formulation actually happens in the country. Thank you for raising this because you know I think uh, while there's a lot of discussion about policy making but policy design is actually the rain shadow area in the sense that many a time it doesn't give get as much attention as it ought to. Here also the role of the last mile is very important because any policy unless it makes a difference at the last point and in our country that's not easy because we are a country of more than a billion in more than a million places. So to be able to see change, which means decentralization has to be central to any policy design. Untied funds have to be very central to policy design. Human resource engagement and innovations therein, nurses, paramedics, teachers, has to again very decentralized and holistic in that way. So if I could just illustrate by way of examples, you know, I still recall the journeys, uh, the uh, Sarvashiksha Abhiyan. Yeah. which I had occasion to be part of the team of as also the National Rural Health Mission and thereafter in rural development. Actually, three different sets of routes that are there as far as arriving at a policy and moving forward is concerned. As you are aware, in the case of education, yeah. the Unni Krishnan judgment, the Honorable Supreme Court and judicial activism is what initiated the debate. Because if you look at the constitution, yes education, health, these are all parts of directive principles of state policy. And I recall uh, searching for the last book that I worked on, searching uh, the debates of the Constituent Assembly to understand why it was so that education, health, all of them were in the directive principles principles and not as fundamental rights. In fact, one of this was asked of Dr. B. R. Ambedkar and one of the responses of his which I found in the Constituent Assembly, we have settled for one person, one vote universal adult suffrage. Universal adult suffrage will do it all. If political democracy is not accompanied by social and economic democracy, democracy itself will collapse. Now, this is what the broad understanding of Dr. Ambedkar at that point of time was. 
But given the practices of democracy, of democratic parties, of alliances, coalitions and so on, democracy survived. No, we've done very well as a political democracy. But on other parameters, we had our challenges, economic and social democracy. Now, the reason I'm giving this background is, it is in this context that Unni Krishnan, the Justice BP Jeevan Reddy judgment in the Unni Krishnan matter, it was about capitation fee in a higher, higher education institution. But as part of the judgment, uh, it said that education up to the age of 14 years is a fundamental right of every Indian child. So like many judgments of court, it came and people thought this too, this too shall pass. <laughs> so not enough was happening thereafter in the states, while regular programs were going on, but no focused attention on it. Then we had a very spirited citizen in the Jabalpur High Court, Satyapal Anand, who took up the matter. He said, look, Supreme Court has already declared it to be a fundamental right. What are the governments doing on this? Hmm. That finally leads to the Honorable Courts directing every chief secretary of the state to file affidavit on eight identified areas of energization in primary education, whether they've provided a school within a kilometer, whether they have provided adequate teachers, classrooms and so on. The then Solicitor General, Arjunya, was made the amicus curiae in the matter. And thanks to this affidavit filing by every state government, there was a pressure on education. Yeah. Now this is the time when the then government, Mr. Bomai was the education minister, HRD minister at that time. A decision was taken to constitute a committee of all the education ministers of all the states under Mohiram Saikya, the Minister of State for Education mm -hmm. in the central government, to assess the financial resource need for universal elementary education, which is what the mandate of the court was. Okay. And in doing so, they went about it in a very ballpark way. They said that 8 crore children are out of schools. 500 per child is the annual cost. Over five years, this is going to cost 40,000 crores additional. But Muhiram Saikya Committee also said that this is not enough. We need to do a normative assessment. Norm-wise, for so many children, we'll have so many teachers and so on. So the normative assessment for that, a committee was set up. And Dr. Tapas Majumdar finally completed the report. I had the occasion to work as its member secretary. We came up with detailed norms and detailed costings. It came to about a lakh and 36,842 crores. <laughs> so That's we were happily financial. with these large numbers <laughs> and braced with detailed calculation sheets and norms and everything. We thought now our arguments is very evidence-based and we'll get all the money that we need. But it isn't so easy to get so much money for That's education. It's a huge money. So as was expected, the then finance minister immediately protested, where is this money going to come from? And as happens in public policy making, we do not make the perfect the enemy of the good. So many a time you settle for something less than that. So we had, for example, planned for a teacher for every group of 30 children. Thereafter, another minister's committee was formed to see that it could be done in much less, that with maybe 40 children per teacher and so on. So this is how from a legal frame, a normative frame, therefore Sarva Shiksha Abhiyan framework was a very supply side driven thing. So many a time, SSA is referred to as a supply side abhyan because provide, providing teachers, providing classrooms, providing toilets. While everything improved, quality of learning remained a challenge in government schools and it is so even today. Yes. The other way of policy making was with regard to the health mission. The UDA, GPA government had come to power, Dr. Manmohan Singh as the Prime Minister. 
And at that point of time, they realized that we were not doing well on primary health, our indicators were poor. A decision was taken at the highest level to have a mission on rural health. But in terms of designing it and working on its contours, I still recall we went about it quite professionally. Ten different groups were set up. One on health financing, one on primary care, one on secondary and tertiary care, a third one on maternal and child health, a fourth one, fifth one on preventive care and so on, public health. So different teams, different sets of experts drawn from the private and the government sector, they all came together to come up with their suggestions. And the role of the center core team, which I was kind of working with, was to look at what is the general sense on primary care. So the framework for implementation of the National Rural Health Mission, which we drafted, we took on board all these ideas. So in a way, the expert consultation fed into the system. When I look at the rural development sector, the rural housing program, now, the best way to learn about it was from the failure of the earlier one, the Indra Avas Yojana, yeah. which the CAG, Controller and Auditor General, carries out a performance audit. Now, the 2014 performance audit of Indra Avas Yojana was our starting point. It indicted the program and for its failures on many parameters, quality of houses not being good, the full list of beneficiaries not being transparent and so on. So all the limitations of the earlier program, which were highlighted in the CAG's report, became the basis for designing the Pradhan Mantri Avas Yojana Grameen. So here it, here it was the CAG's report as the basis. In education, it was a court order as a basis. In health, it was a desire to do something in primary health accompanied by consultation with the experts all over. So different ways of policy making, but in all of them, the critical thing which makes the difference and it stands out is that the last mile was focused on. Right. For example, housing. We wanted to ensure that anybody living in a kacha house. Now, in this day and age, which technology provides you that opportunity, mm -hmm. besides money transfers through IT, the DBT transfers, we could also ensure the geotagging of each and every level of construction or even the beneficiary standing before the old house. Yeah. So I think, and even the availability of the socioeconomic census made for a difference yeah. because we knew who these deprived households are panchayat-wise. Yeah. Who are these household persons living in kacha houses? Now, with all that database used, you know, conjunctively with community processes, the Gram Sabha validating those, they are actually living in a jhopadi. So once that happens, then what happens is it, it brings out, uh, you know, a lot of ideas for action which are well-focused and which help you to move faster. Now, the socio-economic census we had finalized in July 2015, it is caste neutral, creed neutral, religion neutral. If nobody in my family is educated, age 25 above is non-literate, my household will be a deprived household. If I live in one kacha room with kacha roof, I am a deprived household and so on. So deprivation was identified on the basis of very objectively, simply verifiable indicators. We had about 87, 88 million such households in the country, in rural India. And to reach out to each of them, almost about half the rural population. But again, interestingly, when you look at scheduled caste and scheduled tribes, they comprised almost 43% of the deprived households, much in excess of their proportion in the total population. Meaning thereby that deprivation is much more in among them in rural areas. So which meant the... So what has happened by adoption of the SCCC deprivation list is 
one it has addressed both regional and social variations which we have because the coverage of scheduled caste and scheduled tribes is almost double of what the population is because that is how the deprived households were and it also addressed the regional variations because a large number of jhopadis were in the so called bimaru states so 10 states today rural maharashtra rural tamil nadu and the bimaru states or rather the states in the north in the east and in the north the poorer states yeah. together account for 80% of the beneficiaries of the housing program yeah. of the ujwala program of the uh, pradhan mantri uh, the ayushman bharat program the jan arogya yojana yeah. because in all of them what was agreed was that the beneficiaries will be from the same sccc list Yeah. So this uh, people now talk about a labharthi varg mm. a constituency of the deprived right but the constituency of the deprived has been created on account of adoption of similar principles in these programs awesome. so in many cases when we say that pro poor public welfare has worked in these years mm. it has worked as far as the asset deficits of those households were concerned right. and that really makes a difference because we remember as students we were told about the trickle down, down theory, theory of yeah. economic growth leading to prosperity and reduction in poverty yes, on the other hand we had the theories about human development on how human development will make a difference then came the world bank east asian miracle study on the east asian nations yes. where education and a proactive government seemed to have made a difference so we were trying with all these programs but one clear gap and that we again that's again one of the hypothesis which i have argued for even in my book the asset deficits of the poor when a poor household gets a house he gets dignity a pakka house a toilet of their own drinking water bank account of their own membership of a women self help group bank loans and so on then what happens is there is a certain dignity in that household at the place where they live when what that happens their ability to access public services also goes up there is enough evidence to that effect that's, that when basic that's very interesting yeah, yeah the asset deficits are attended to it makes a difference otherwise also right right amazing this is truly amazing and you also brought in uh, two aspects here one was how technology is being used the second was the use of evidence and data for public policy Uh, would you like to a little more highlight about the technology aspect here because i think the evidence and data you've provided enough uh, you know evidence to all of us and a lot of examples of how that was used across schemes but how uh, technology is being used and you did mention uh, you know previously about aadhar seeded accounts and how transformation is happening at this stage so no clearly technology is a means it's a enabler technology is not an end in itself of course many a time we get very excited with a good app that we've designed yeah. as if the app will do it all but we've never looked at how often people have made use of that app so the challenge for us is to use technology as a means with fair amount of hand holding and grievance redressal at the last mile because whenever you use technology there would be a few instances for example in the mg and rgs program there would were always a few instances of somebody saying that i have done work but my payment has not come mm-hmm. we need to put in place grievance redressal systems at the local level because imagine the plight of a poor household which has done work and not been paid yeah. so that should not happen in a single case yeah. so many challenges with regard to technology is there but the clear lesson that we learned in all these programs yes by all means it is a great enabler 
But technology is a means, it's not an end in itself. You still need the human interface. And this is something which you find sector after sector. Much as digital education systems are in place, it is no substitute to the actual classroom processes. Mm. There has to be a blended learning, there has to be both. Similarly, in many of the health activities, uh, COVID of course disrupted many activities and routine functions, you know, many things, the human element at the cutting edge. That's why these are sectors where innovations in human resource engagement becomes important. I was giving the example of the livelihood mission. If you look at why it succeeded, it did not depend on any big consultant from somewhere across the world coming to guide them. It depended on the full foot soldiers. Who are the women who are the biggest strength for the livelihood mission? It is women who've come out of poverty. And they are the ones who've gone to other states to form groups, to form collectives of women and to empower them to be able to take decisions on their own, to be able to take, borrow credit and to be able to make use of it for certain gains. So clearly, this army of foot soldiers that we have in the livelihood mission, more than three and a half, three lakh fifty thousand today, three hundred and fifty thousand women who are community resource persons, who've themselves been poor at one time, but they've come out of it. Today, they go as a CRP, community resource person for community mobilization. Somebody is a Krishi Sahayasyathi. Somebody is a Pashu Sakhi. Somebody else is a Bank Sakhi. We realized in, when credit was not available, we realized that many a time it was getting stuck at that last mile. Last mile example again, which is related to this and use of technology. We said we'll monitor it in the regular banking system. You know, SHG loan lending, what is the position? What is the outstanding and so on. So once it got included into the monitoring sheets of the banks, Many states started a system, Bihar and Bengal, for example, of a system called a community-based recovery mechanism, where the branch manager in the bank, every rural branch, yeah. sits with the women of the SHGs once in a fortnight. Okay. The manager tells them these are the women whose accounts are getting overdue. Okay. They get the payments done. Women in turn come with their microcredit plans for lending. Said, these are the loans that we want. So through a mutual arrangement at the local level, we find you know, the five southern Indian states accounted for 86% of all the lending in 2013-14. Today, it's down to about 50%. Not, when in absolute terms, it has gone up there. But states like Bihar, which was borrowing 100 crores for SHGs eight years ago, today borrows 6,000 crores. Oh, that's West Bengal is borrowing 13,000 crores a year, which is equal to what Telangana borrows. So, a lot of this change right. is where hope lies. Right. That a lot of processes which have happened in southern Indian states are now happening on scale in a lot of northern Indian states also. Yes, post-COVID, our challenges with regard to incomes, with regard to employment and with regard to learning poverty, these need to be addressed. We need to do something on public health more systematically. While we did our COVID vaccinations very well, but we still have a lot of challenges for the larger public health system for it to be able to respond to any public health emergencies to have the capacity to do so. But having said that, overall, the $5 trillion economy or a developed India vision that we have at our 75th year of independence, according to me, the best way to achieve it is through an inclusive India, which is only possible if human capital is what we focus on. This is the evidence from across the world. Even as leaders in the G20 today, 
we, if we have to learn from the other G20 countries, they have a few things to learn from us. Digital, use of the digital finance, use of the digital platforms that we've developed. So many other things which we have done, the pharmaceutical industry here, for example, and manufacture of vaccines and so on. Likewise, we too have a lot to learn from them. Yes. Why is it that their per capita incomes are much higher? Because in the G20, uh, again, uh, we still have a long, long way to go, whether it comes to labor workforce participation rate, the women labor force participation rate, or it is the uh, per capita income, even with uh, you know, the purchasing power parity, we still have a very, very long way to go. We are at about $6,000 even with PPP, yeah. the purchasing power parity, 6444 Whereas the nearest G20 nation is above $10,000. So I think uh, the lesson clearly is that human capital makes a difference. Decentralization makes a difference. Untied resources at local government level makes a difference. Let us, uh, you know, create collectives and women's participation. Women, because ultimately, a lot of our the work that women do is either not accounted for, unpaid, unpaid work, unrecognized work. So, a lot of change in mindsets are needed there as well for us to be on the road. Right. Thank you so much, Mr. Sana. You've really put it so well for our audience and I'm sure everyone is going to love this podcast. Thank you so much on behalf of ISB for sparing your valuable time and for being with us today. Thank you, Arushi. I enjoyed being here. Thank you so much.